Hello and welcome to the Seems Legit Podcast, hosted by your favorite craft beer drinking, whiskey sipping, bourbon appreciating, sushi eating, steak craving, speedo wearing, tell it like it is, poker playing guitars, the dude himself, the dude Sonny D. Thank you all so much uh, for tuning in to this episode of the Seems Legit uh, Podcast. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to all our friends of the show. Uh, let's start with Self-Fix Doctors, located right here in Winnipeg at 666 St. James Street. Please visit them for any cell phone, tablet, and screen repair needs you might have. Mention the Seems Legit podcast and receive 10% off. Uh, Skin Dimensions Tattoo, located here on Cordon Avenue. Please visit them for any of your tattooing and piercing needs. Uh, down in Fayetteville, Georgia, we got Zero Gravity Games. Go visit them for any of your used, rare, and vintage gaming needs. And last but not least, uh, if you have the chance, check out the Vegas Squares podcast, Sports Talk by Sports Fans for Sports Fans. I want to also thank all of you for the continued and growing support here at the Seems Legit Podcast. All right, let's get into it. Um, relatively exciting day, and I think it kind of goes along with uh, one of my last episodes um, talking about summer activities and summer sports and kind of the difference between certain sports and uh, some of the downfalls of some great sports. But a uh, big thing happened yesterday, uh, well, a few big things actually in sports, but the big one I want to talk about is in tennis. Um, a young 18-year-old um, from Canada, Bianca Andreescu, uh, won at the Indian Wells uh, Master or WPT or WTA, uh, I think it's Masters 1000 level. Um, it is also considered, and this is such a cool achievement, so she'll now uh, shoot up 36 positions in the world uh, WT uh, Tour uh, World Rankings with this victory at Indian Wells. Um, I be- I'd heard this morning like her previous career winnings was about 300,000 or 200 something thousand. Uh, just with the- this victory alone, she'll earn uh, just over $1.35 million US. So uh, to start the year, she was actually 152nd in the world, and now she'll be all the way up to number 24. So it's quite the accomplishment. So a big congratulations to Bianca. Uh, she's scheduled to play uh, this coming week at the Miami Open. Um, I think that's like this is kind of that kind of fun part of the circuit, uh, I guess, maybe uh, for tennis. It's been such a long time since I've followed the entire tennis season. I used to be really big into tennis growing up. I was actually uh, out with my buddy uh, Nick last night, and uh, we were chatting about tennis and some of the downfalls I mentioned in previous episodes. You know, how both people have to have a certain skill level to truly enjoy it. But as a kid growing up, you know, you can go to tennis camp stuff, and uh, it was just a big uh, sport to me. And I was really big into watching tennis. I thought it was actually a really exciting sport to watch. And I know um, it's not as exciting as some of the other ones um, or the classically exciting sports, but I think it actually is in many ways. Um, just as exciting, if not more exciting, because uh, there can be some dull hockey games. I know, I know, as a Canadian to say that, um, that don't compare to even a mid-range t- um, tennis match between two top players. So, uh, I think it's just a great sport, but I think this is a hell of an accomplishment. And so, not only does she, I mean, basically quadruple her lifetime earnings, uh, rising drastically in the rankings. But this is also the greatest accomplishment in singles tennis in Canadian history. Uh, So, I mean, that's really kind of going to show um, just how far we've come in tennis. I remember for years, I think it was Daniel Nestor was our great uh, Canadian player. And, I mean, he had a lot of double success. He uh, won an Olympic gold medal uh, for Canada, which was shocking. Um, I don't think anybody pegged us to win that year, but we did. I think it was at the 2000 Olympics. So that was really cool. 
Um, but da yeah, Daniel Nestor was kind of as good as it got for um, Canadian uh, tennis for a long time, as far as I can remember. And then now we've had some other good players come up, like Milos Raonic has had some good runs, won some tournaments. Um, or maybe it was singles women's tennis. I don't know. but No, because I don't think uh, Raonic has won a Masters 1000 level um, event. So, Nora Shapovalov. So, yeah, I think it is. Um, I think that's what I heard. So, let's go with it that it is. Um, but we have some young up-and-comers that are really pushing. Um, Raonic is kind of in a bit of a trap um, now because he really has to take a huge step up in uh, his level of accomplishment if he really wants to kind of solidify his place in this era. Uh, when you think about it, he's been around for quite a while now. Uh, it seems like he's been a prospect for a long time. And credit to him, I mean... He came in there, and he was the one pushing the big four uh, for a long time. Had some really good runs, um, and really kind of took Canadian tennis to a new level. So, I mean, it, it's just amazing that every Canadian pro that's making it to that point is having such an impact on Canadian tennis and accomplishments. I think we're kind of, for those Canadian tennis fans out there, witnessing something really cool, really interesting, and, and part of history. So, I think we can uh, kind of look at that and appreciate that and uh, take it for what it is and I mean uh, you know we're seeing a kind of a, a torch being handed down women's tennis um, to this young girl and be interesting to see uh, we saw a few years ago Eugenie Bouchard shocked uh, many people and I think made a quarterfinal or semifinal appearance at the Australian Open and I mean look at that who would have expected that back then so I think it's really kind of cool just what we're seeing um, I really do kind of feel bad uh, for the trajectory that uh, Bouchard's career kind of took. Uh, I'm hoping she can find her game again, so to speak. And I, and I mean that as an athlete myself um, and a mental athlete, a, a poker player. Haha. Uh, it's, it's about finding your game, finding your rhythm. All of these things um, greatly contribute uh, to your success and ability to succeed. And as I said, you have to perform to win and put yourself in positions to win. Uh, I've mentioned that before, and that's a big thing I want to keep stressing out there. And uh, part of that is finding your game, finding your rhythm, finding whatever it is. So I'm hoping that uh, Eugenie can uh, put something together there and, you know, make a really kind of career resurgence. It would be nice to see, um, as a Canadian tennis fan and as kind of someone who, who, for her sake, who was kind of just shoved in the limelight... I mean, she was doing the Sports Illustrated swimsuit that year. She was getting all kinds of endorsement deals. She was just a kid. And, I mean, I can't imagine what I would have been like at that age if I had been the same way at any kind of sport, especially at an individual sport like that where it's it's truly your accomplishment. Um, I just, I don't know how I would even handle it. You know, you look at that happened to a lot of young celebrities. So... You know, it's, I think it's how you can turn it, how you can spin it, and how you can deal with it, and, and what you want to deal with it. So, um, hopefully this uh, young girl is given a chance to succeed, and as I said, Bouchard can turn things around. And, I mean, it, it kind of now goes to speak to some of the convergence and, and divergence even you're seeing in talent. Um, actually, no, it's, it's a, con uh, yeah, it's a really, it is a convergence of um, talent in other sports where, you know, certain countries were the favorites. Now other countries are coming in. I mean, you look at even the last Summer Olympics, uh, that swimming, uh, the female swimmer, Penny Alexiak, who uh, shocked a lot of people and I think even won a gold medal um, and was young too. I think 16 at the time. 
So, I mean, it's just incredible um, how in some sports we're catching up to other countries and in other sports that we're traditionally dominant in, the countries are catching up to us. I mean, you're hearing now even of like hockey in places like India, South America. Um, I think the world champion or the best team, ball hockey team in the world is the Indo-Canadian ball hockey team. And I was watching a YouTube video on it. It was super interesting. And how they said, like, the, we understood how to play hockey. We never had a chance to learn how to skate and whatnot. But they learned how to play hockey and just, you know, studied from the best players and watched and learned and practiced and worked hard and got there. And, I mean, that's pretty crazy to think. I mean, who would have thought 30 years ago that would be the case? So, I mean... I'm super proud as, uh, you know, that's my kind of uh, ethnic background. So, I mean, it's really cool when you see that, um, you know, such diversity in sports and culture. And in the other side of it is you're seeing that, yeah, other countries are catching up now. Switzerland has been kind of a pain in a lot of people's sides at hockey now for quite a few years. Um, Going back to a few Olympics when even the NHL players were there. You know, Sweden, I believe, since the NHL has been going to the Olympics, I believe it is actually Sweden who has the most medals of any country, even more than Canada. So, I mean, that kind of tells you um, that things aren't as skewed in some sports as people realize. Like, yeah, you have what people believe are the classical favorites, but when you really think about it, sometimes uh, what we've been trained to believe or believe we're seeing isn't actually the case. So, I mean, even in curling... I think a lot of people expected Canada to dominate curling. We won the mixed doubles at the last Olympics, but then we didn't get a gold in either. Um, yeah, no, we didn't get gold in either men's or women's. So, you know, it happened. I think the U.S. was the gold medal team on the men's side. I can't remember who on the women's side. But it just goes to show you, I mean, even now at the Women's World Championship in curling, um, Canada has a 500 record. Like, who would have thought that? Um and I mean, too, there's other things that I mean in North America that we do for our sports that they don't necessarily do in other parts of the world. But in other sports, they make a big deal out of. And that's, um, for instance, at the Winter Olympics, you know, the men's hockey team announcement and even the women's um, hockey team announcements, how it becomes these big spectacles. They don't do that in the other countries. They, they just, this is the team. They're going to the Olympics. Like they don't, they don't have special ceremonies and weird press conferences, uh, and kind of. The, I remember they did it once during the uh, outdoor game between Toronto and Detroit, and uh, it, it it was kind of awkward because there was players from both Detroit and Toronto that could have been called to the team. Um, but there's also some that were kind of on the fence. So I can just imagine being like, hey, you, 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 you have to come put on the USA jersey to go out. And the others are like, oh, no, no, sorry, dude. I didn't, um, not you. Uh, this. Like, how fucking awkward is that? So, I mean, I, I don't know if that happened. I can't remember. I, I think there was one of the, the players was left off that could have been there. I think it might have been Justin Abdelkader might have been left off, but I could be wrong. And I mean, we make this big spectacle of it. And, and, I, and I think that was probably a big thing for a lot of players, right? And you were hearing the pressure to make the Olympics teams. And I think it was because the nation was putting so much pressure on some of these athletes. You know, Canada, rah, 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 we were going to win the gold. We need to win the gold. We need to win the gold. This is our sport. And for some of these guys that never got to compete at the Olympics or, you know, 
were last minute additions to teams, I think they did wear a bit of a chip on their shoulder and sometimes it showed like they were the ones that led the way. So it was really kind of an interesting thing, but in other countries, you just never saw that. So I don't know. Uh, and I don't know what it does for a psyche. I mean, you look at Ovechkin post last Olympics versus going into the last Olympics that he would have participated in. And I believe it was like a startling difference um, in terms of performance, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah, because I believe going into that 2014 Olympics, that was kind of right around where um, things were kind of, people were like, oh, the Ovechkin era is done. Oh, everybody's figured out Ovechkin, you know, Ovechkin this, Ovechkin that. And... I mean, now he's come back, and since he's been able to focus on, like, hey, I'm not going to the Olympics anytime soon, let's just focus. I mean, he's won more Richard trophies than anybody else combined, I think, in that time period. Uh, so, and a cup, and a con Smythe. So, you know, sometimes these, these externalities uh, were causing uh, certain detriments to certain athletes. So, we'll see, uh, and how it normalizes things. Uh, not having that weird pressure of trying to make, um, well, I guess your sport team, but not, a, it, it was just so weird. I, I don't know why we made a big deal about it, but I mean, that's what we do. It's our sport. And, but it's funny because I'm pretty sure our national sport is lacrosse, yet we don't make uh, special announcements announcing any of our lacrosse teams. I don't even know if the National Lacrosse League is even televised anymore, if I'm being honest. So, uh, that's kind of a weird fun fact there. Uh, but yeah, no, so you're seeing a lot more of that kind of converging of talent now where other countries, and I mean, they're taking the best, they're, you know, they're getting the coaches from the best or the best athletes that are now coaching and bringing them to whichever countries to learn the sports. Um, you're seeing now as we're, as culturally we're diversifying as a planet, uh, you're seeing now a lot more, you know, Kids that would have grown up in a different country now are living in Canada, now are growing up playing hockey. You know, how many kids in my generation were first-generation Canadians, you know, and now are playing in the NHL? You know, it's just, it's really cool. Or their parents were first-generation Canadians but had grown up elsewhere. Well, no, so that wouldn't even make them first-generation Canadian, but they came as kids. So they had still had a lot of the, uh, you know, their culture from behind. And you know, from wherever, whichever country they might have come from. And now, you know, my generation is that first generation growing up in Canada, doing Canadian activities, you know, playing hockey, all of these things. And, you know, it is what it is. And even now you look at like soccer. I mean, soccer is a sport Canada really kind of does need to get um, catch up in. I think we are falling drastically behind but I have other theories on why soccer and um, isn't um, as big a thing in Canada. But and it's a socioeconomic uh, phenomenon that I believe in. But anyway, in soccer, even now we have a guy, a Canadian kid that is playing for Bayern Munich in uh, the Bundesliga over in Europe. I think he scored a goal. I think he was the youngest to score a goal in the Bundesliga. Like he's rocking it over there. So even now we're having some talent emerge as elite and maybe that's from exposure, you know, MLS coming in now. MLS has really taken off over the last number of years uh, and kind of taken over from lacrosse, I would say. 
Uh, so, and you know, we're getting, you know, MLS players from overseas, players that you wouldn't have thought would be playing over in North America now are. So it's kind of interesting when you're seeing that. And now we're going over and dominating in Europe where all the top players play. Uh, how it's going to translate by the next Olympics. I think Canada's soccer program, pardon me, needs some drastic like overhaul. Uh, and I don't know where that happens. I don't know enough about the coaching of soccer. I mean, it would be a sport I'd love to coach. If I took the time to study it more, I think it would be, you know, I have a certain skill set at the sport, have a certain understanding of the mechanics of the sport uh, and the strategies. But understanding more of that, I would love to and have a chance to coach uh, soccer because, I mean, Canada's soccer program, you can see there's just so many fundamental flaws in that we're not catching up to anybody. And not only are we not catching up, they're moving ahead faster than we're catching up. And that, that's not good. So we need some kind of overhaul. And maybe it is, you know, building of facilities, you know, and, and I think that's part of it too, is you need certain infrastructures in place. You can't just build and hope they come um, in today's ever-changing world economy. You need to be more cognizant about your spending. Um, there goes my grandfather clock. Uh, but anyway, they uh, you need to be more cognizant of your spending. So with the expansion of MLS, I think you're seeing more of that North American drive for it. Just like you're seeing now in hockey, how I think they labeled Austin Matthews as the first direct beneficiary of the Wayne Gretzky move to LA. Is that age-wise and everything, he would have been of that first generation of US player. Oh, and because he's from Arizona. Yeah, who would have benefited from the uh, expansion to the warmer climates in hockey and the eventual uh, Gretzky trade. So that's kind of interesting to see now how that's happening and how, you know, you build the infrastructure for it and eventually it flourishes. And maybe you're starting to see that now in with MLS, bringing over the talent now that they've been doing. I mean, since David Beckham. I think lest we forget, in the early 2000s, Beckham had come over to the LA Galaxy, and that was like the first big, like, boom. Everybody's like, whoa. I think it was like a quarter of a billion dollars to get him for 10 years or whatever it was, or five years, raking in the cash. But in hindsight, that was a good investment league-wise. I don't know how profitable a sport it is, but I can't imagine. It's the, it's the number one sport in the world. So, uh, with, I mean, the, the biggest expense is the players. Um, but yeah, with that being said, it's, you know, you're starting to see that impact. So maybe, yeah, and going into these next, uh, world cup and things like that, you will see, uh, how, you know, countries like the U S, um, have caught back up, um, Canada, the progress they made. But as I said, I, I'd really, Canada needs to make some huge jumps there, but you know, Brazil, for instance, when was the last time it sounds horrible? Brazil, Brazil was truly relevant at a world cup. I mean, I think they get kind of a, a favorable ranking because they're better than the teams they play. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, they've somehow, their program has taken a dip as well. And maybe it's because kids moving all over the world now. You're seeing kids that would have grown up playing soccer in Brazil now in Canada. They have a little Brazilian community, you know, and all of a sudden now you have these, you know, and, and I think that is a big part of it is multiculturalism is breeding that kind of convergence of talent and spreading it across sport and all endeavors. So that's kind of really cool to see. And we're living kind of now in that time period where those motions of 50 years ago and 40 years ago and 30 years ago are now taking place, uh, which is really cool. 
uh, if you really think about it and, and take a time, take the time to appreciate that. So I think we can do a bit of that now as we look around and see that and, and, and just be cognizant of that. Take a look at that next time you're, you know, following your favorite sport, just kind of be like, whoa, that's an interesting story of how that person got to there. And, you know, even if it's something where, you know, even just moving, you know, provinces, states, whatever it is, how that's having an impact on, you know, the next generations. So that's really cool uh, to see and be a part of. And I think we can all appreciate that. And I think with that, actually, I was going to talk about some hockey. Um, You know what? Yeah, I'll leave it here for today, I think. Um, but yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing now with that kind of convergence of talent with Bianca and Drescu, uh, and what she was able to accomplish at Indian Wells, really cool. Um, actually, you know what? Let's talk about one more thing. Uh, let's talk about uh, the golf uh, and what the heck happened there on Sunday uh, at the TPC. So essentially, as I am trying to pull it up on my ever-slowing computer... Um, where is it? Yeah. So, and I'm trying to pull it up. What I remember happening, um, the big thing was, uh, Rory McIlroy kind of came out of nowhere and from behind to win when I was, uh, watching, uh, the kind of what was going on. I, uh, McElroy was a few strokes behind, so it it was kind of kind of kind of kind of it was interesting to see um, an interesting Sunday again. I think the problem, yeah. See here you go. Rory McElroy needed to make a par on the 18th to avoid a playoff and did just that. After five consecutive top six finishes, the Northern Irishman qualified around 70 to win for the 15th time on the PGA Tour. So good for him. Um, but yeah, he came from behind to win uh, at uh, the TPC, which, I mean, it, I don't know what the translation is between some of these kind of B-level tournaments and the major tournaments. I think golf is a sport that seems to have such um, kind of drastic variance uh, in terms of success in terms of what quantifies success, I think everybody wants to win a major uh, and wants to win the big four. I don't know, like, when you look at it compared to tennis, for instance, I, I think going, you know, because you have the, the different se- court seasons in tennis, as you go through the different seasons, I think whoever's trending and doing the best kind of carries that success through an entire season. Whereas in golf, you'll have a guy go and win a tournament one week and um, just get uh, just not do well the next. Um, and sometimes you see that in these kind of preliminary, you know, those B class, you know, those kind of Masters 1000 level um, ten- uh, golf tournaments uh, versus in tennis. Like, I don't know if this makes Rory McIlroy a favorite to win the Masters now. Um, I really, I don't. Like, I just, I, I don't see um how the correlation happens because i'm pretty sure going to last year's u.s open the guy had won it for a second straight year um but wasn't the betting favorite so yeah here it is yeah roy McIlroy shot a 16 under uh to beat jim furick who i was i was rooting for furick's been around for a while 
But yeah, I mean, here you go. You have Rory McIlroy, and then, like, where's the number one player in the world? Like, I'm trying to find, uh, I think it's just uh, Dustin Johnson. I think he might have finished worse than Tiger. I think there's so many externalities in golf that it's so hard to use one event as the measuring stick for the next because the courses are different. Um, maybe they all, maybe they, it is kind of the same thing. I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk to somebody who knows more about golf. I got to get to, uh, token Tony on here to talk about golf. Um, and now I'm starting to regret talking about golf today, um, but might as well. Um, it just, there's so many more externalities to it. Um, I get in tennis. Yeah. You have the travel schedule and it's a pretty grinding sport, but it's the same kind of court, like same texture. Maybe the weather's a little different. In golf, there's so many other things going on tournament to tournament that it, it's so hard to predict that, okay, who now becomes a favorite? I think you have to look at overall trends of much bigger sample sizes in golf. And I think people that break down golf and, and study golf and, and analyze golf probably, I would imagine, have to, would agree with me there that with golf, you have to look at a much larger body of work than what you would um, any kind of other sport that has seasons and, and tournament style play. Um, even when I compare it kind of to poker, you have players that are just running super well. Um, but I mean, in poker, you can kind of tailor your opportunities for success. Uh, I bring that kind of to um, last year with Justin Bonimo, it was kind of an interesting thing. So they had two Aria super high roller bowls last year. Uh, the first one Bonimo won, and it was something ridiculous. Like of all the ultra high roller bowl, um, high roller events or super high rollers, whatever you want to call them. He won all of them to begin the year. And even going into the world series, he won the million dollar, uh, big one for one drop has become the number one, uh, tournament earner. And I think he still holds that designation. I think he still is number one. Um, after the U.S. Po um, Poker Open. And, which I, I think I'm going to do a whole episode talking about how um, the developments in poker and how the poker landscape is evolving, uh, whether we admit it or not, whether it's for better or not. But um, just bringing that down into kind of the same kind of successes as of predicting things. It's interesting because in poker, for instance, Justin Bonomo within the community was getting a lot of attention because of his success. But it's, it's a very kind of street-level community. So everybody's talking about what's happening around them and what they're seeing around them. And if you're not surrounded by or surrounding yourself by those players that are playing all these big tournaments and seeing how they're playing, what they're playing, following them wherever you can, uh, you know, following, uh, you know, uh, whether it be Poker Go or whatever it might be. Um, I think uh, Sportsnet shows some poker. However you get your, your footage and you're studying it and watching it, um, Twitch, all of these things. I think it really becomes an interesting thing because you're seeing different things happening. Uh, with Bonimo, he's being very select in the events he was playing um, with fields that he was beating, I mean, not relatively easily. There's nothing easy about poker, but was having measurably success, um, predictable success uh, at all these events. And poker's so hard, especially the evolution of how, you know, people staking and getting staked and what their actual equity in their performance is. All of these things going around that are such great areas, being profitable is, is important, um, incredibly important. So you were seeing that, but at the World Series itself, I don't even think Bonomo was in the top 10 for player of the year, and he won two bracelets. 
um, including an event I played. So when you think about that, okay, does that detract from what he was accomplishment uh, accomplishing? Or does it speak more to the concentrations of his wins? He played far fewer um, poker events than a lot of other people. Uh, I don't know if he played the main event even. He might have played the main, but I, I don't even know about that. And, you know, he, he developed a strategy for concentrated fields, uh, which was highly effective. Um, very similar to what you saw Fedor Holtz do a, f a number of years ago, about five years ago. Uh, maybe longer than that, but Fedor Holds came in and did that and kind of said, I don't want to play the low-level tournaments. I know that in a smaller field of 50 players, I have a high success rate of winning. Um, I myself kind of had understood that strategy, but was doing it at much smaller stakes and grinding out a living and do that, and that's how I grind out my living. Is And every poker player kind of does it, if you're a tournament player, cash player, however it is, is finding that perfect form of um, success and where your strengths are. And going into, so going back to predictability of success and how it relates to all this is I don't know if predicting Bonham would be player of the year would have been a smart bet. And there was probably value, for instance, in finding other players that were trending well, like a Sean Deeb, for instance, was looking incredible. Um, a buddy of mine had alerted me to Ben Yu and was saying, this is a guy to watch for. Another one which was a sleeper surprise to many, many people. But again, I had had a buddy that said, just watch. He actually is really good and he, and he specializes in an event um, was Joe Cata. And he said, just, and he says, know that if you end up in a table or a situation against Joe Cata, you're going to have to bring it. And which is so valuable advice to, which is very valuable advice to have in the poker season. And so it was funny because I thought I was kind of guilty of maybe thinking, nah, I thought it might even be Michael the Grinder Mizraki might get player of the year this year. I thought, you know, Negreanu always puts himself in a good position because he plays a lot of events. Uh, Barry Greenstein's very predictable. Uh, not predictable, but very um, consistent, I should say. Um, there was the Ivy surprise, was that Phil Ivy was back playing a relatively uh, large World Series schedule, uh, which, I mean, was kind of cool. I mean, it's also a bit of a tourist attraction, the World Series of Poker. So when you're getting the biggest name players out there, it's um, it's a feat in itself. So there were some people that said you can't ever discount Phil Ivy. You just can't do it. Um, I think he's one of that elite company that has won three bracelets in a summer. So, you know, it is what it is. And he is second all-time in bracelets, uh, tied with Johnny Chan and uh, Doyle Brunson uh, behind Phil Hellmuth. And many people have thought that it, Ivy was well on pace, and he was well on pace to beating Hellmuth's record. But, I mean, he stopped playing the events and I guess was going through some personal issues. Um and yeah, so I mean, you have all these things that I was guilty of falling into those traps when my buddies who live in Vegas, you know, are, are have, you know, have their ears to the ground in the poker scene were telling me like, no, 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 no. These are the people you need to watch for. And I was like, okay, good, valuable information to know. And, you know, so you have to know where you're doing your homework and stuff like that. And as I said, so like poker, like, um, like golf, I think there's extra now to it 
um, that change that same predictability um, with sports that are significantly more consistent. Uh, like a tennis, for instance, like I would imagine bowling. Um, if you're the top bowler in the world, it's probably pretty predictable. If you're trending upwards, you're going to continue to have success. So I guess that's kind of something interesting, though, but that Roy McIlroy is back in the uh, winner's circle. Oh, no, J Dustin Johnson was uh, only a few strokes behind. I mean, and there you go. So um, golf is one of those ones, too, where it, success is kind of measured in a very similar manner to poker in that there's degrees of success within the bigger picture and you do get rewarded uh for consistency at least so yeah i think uh, that's kind of cool but anyway i uh i'm rambling on now uh, to quote led zeppelin so i'm gonna leave it there i've digressed a little uh too far there but um Anyway, I thank you all so much for the continued and growing support here on the Seems Legit podcast. Uh, if you're not already doing so, please make sure to follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at the dude Sunny D. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode. Take care and bye bye for now.